Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm a fan of country music. Well, uh, not so much maybe uh, today's music. I'm more of a fan of classic country, that great stuff from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now, I know some of you, under the sound of my voice today, maybe you have a problem with country music. You think all those country music songs are sappy, sad songs about a guy who's lost his girl, and maybe his truck, and maybe his dog. But that's not quite true. Why, it's only been 30 years since Roy Clark wrote a big hit where a guy is ecstatic about the fact that his girl left. The title of that song was, Thank God and Greyhound, She's Gone. <laughs> but you know, there, there are uh, significant themes, too, I think, among some of country music songs. How about this one from 1959? Uh, has, does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? The title of the song is, I Guess It Never Hurts to Hurt Sometime. And yes, the theme is about his girl that left him. But the lyrics in part go like this. Oh, you're always in my heart. And you're often on my mind. Van Warmer is saying here that I think about you often, but it's deeper than that. Because I feel you're leaving here in my heart all the time. Now, there is a difference between the things we hold in our heart and the things we just simply think about. Some things you think about, but they never do reach your heart, not really. The weather, getting the snow tires on your car, the hockey scores from last night. We think about those things, but they come and go, and they never do touch us here in the heart. So I want you to come with me this morning to Luke 2.19, and as we get down a little later, as we are in Luke chapter 2, Luke is wrapping up his version of the Christmas story. When we get to verse 19 of chapter 2, Luke has already told us about the visit to Mary by angel Gabriel to uh, telling her that she's going to birth the Christ child. Uh, we've already, he's already told us the story of Mary's subsequent visit to her cousin Elizabeth to tell her the great news. And then just before Luke 2.19, the shepherds come to Bethlehem and see the Christ child lying in the manger. And then what does Luke chapter 2 and verse 19 tell us? And here it is, Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. All these things, Mary, for Mary, all these things were not just simply passing thoughts. I suggest to you this morning that they were truths often considered deeply impacting and profoundly felt truths that she felt down deep in her heart. So I want you to come with me now for a few minutes as we think about 
those things, those things that Mary thought about, I would like for us to think about and hold them in our heart for a few minutes. So as we come to Luke 2, chapter, 9, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, the celebration is over. The shepherds have, have returned to their flocks, and perhaps Joseph is out tending to the donkey, and Mary is alone with her newborn. And she sits gazing into the face of Emmanuel, God with us, and she's thinking about all these things. What things? Well, I'm going to suggest four to you that she was thinking about, and the first would be this. Just, she has to be thinking about the angel Gabriel's visit. Now, that happened nine months ago, and it's then that Mary realizes that God's greatest work requires us. Now, Mary's just a peasant girl, and no doubt, no doubt when the angel Gabriel appeared to her to tell her she would give birth to the Christ, she probably was going about her daily routine, maybe fetching wood for the fire, helping harvest the grapes, assisting her mother in meal prep. But I remind you today that Jesus didn't show up in royal robes in Herod's court. Jesus did not arrive with legions of troops to overthrow Caesar Augustus and take command. No, God walked down the staircase of heaven and laid a baby in Mary's arms, a helpless little baby. Canadian pastor Ken Shigematsu had this to say about that event. The God of the universe cannot feed himself. Mary has to breastfeed him. The God of all things cannot control his bladder or bowel, so God is wearing diapers. God can't walk. When he's about one, he's able to take a few steps, and about two is able to say a few words. He will fall, he will scrape his knee. As a toddler, he'll grow bored of his toys and walk away from them. He'll go through the emotional ups and down of, an abs, abs, of a teenager. He will, as a junior apprentice carpenter, he'll have splinters in his fingers. And as he's learning to hammer a nail, he'll occasionally miss and hit his thumb. God's greatest work on earth requires Mary's help. Mary nursed and, and coddled and loved on that precious little infant. She guided and disciplined and loved that toddler. She, she raised him and fed him and clothed him through childhood and his teen years. Yes, God's greatest work required Mary. What a thought. Think about that. Now, let me just pause a minute here to caution you're thinking. I, I wonder if we aren't inclined, too inclined, to elevate Mary to some Mary Poppins-like status where she's practically perfect in every way. I have no doubt that Mary was a God-fearing girl, but not perfect and maybe not so different from the 16, 17-year-old teenage girls here in this crowd. 
be careful not to put Mary on some pedestal that makes us come to this conclusion. Well, sure God chose Mary. Sure God used Mary, but she was one in a million. Mary was innocent and pure and so far beyond all of us other mortals. I should remind you this morning that Jesus came to save Mary too, you know. Yes, God's greatest work required Mary. And God's greatest work requires you today. Don't we all love a story where a story where an apparently insignificant person becomes indispensable to some great cause? It's the right season of the year, so maybe I'll mention that that scorned reindeer, Rudolph. You know, the one with the red nose. And the song goes, then one foggy, and of course we all know that the color red, uh, you can see better with a red light when you're in fog. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? And Rudolph became an, an MVR, um, the most valuable reindeer. Now, maybe, maybe you don't think of yourself as, as an MVP, a most valuable person, but hear me this morning. God's great work on earth during these days requires your help. does. Think of the 12 disciples Jesus chose. Not an educated man among them. They were commoners, laborers, fishermen, farmers, and even a tax collector. And a tax collector in those days would make everybody's most despised list. And among his women followers, an ex-prostitute. And today, God's work on earth requires you. Yes, it does. In your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in your community, if God is going to complete the task that he wants to complete in your sphere of influence, he needs your words, your deeds, and your influence. God works through you and me. Think about that. Well, the next thing I would have you notice here is that Mary thinking on these things has to include, of course, her visit to Elizabeth. And it was then that, that Mary learned that God always provides someone to walk with us through troubled times. Always. Luke records the story just days after, after Gabriel's visit. Mary takes a few days trip to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now it appears that Mary has told no one to this point what Gabriel told her about giving birth to the Christ. But can you imagine? She, she has to be dreading telling her fiancé, Joseph. And how about telling her parents? Can you imagine how that went? Yes. Yes, Daddy, I am pregnant, but I swear I've never been with a, a man honest, Dad. Think about that. And as she approaches Elizabeth home, Mary has to be thinking, I need to tell her about the angel's visit. I, I wonder what she'll think. I wonder what she'll, how she'll respond. What will she say? Will she laugh at me? Will she not believe me? But you know what? God got to Elizabeth before Mary did. Good old Elizabeth. God always provides. God always provides an Elizabeth or two to walk with us through troubled times. Isn't it interesting, all through history and culture and music and movies and cartoons, 
There are all kinds of examples around us of how two is always stronger than one. Think about it. Uh, SpongeBob had Patrick, and, <laughs> and Bert had Ernie, and Scooby-Doo had Shaggy, and Batman had Ramad, Simon had Garfunkel, John Lennon had Paul McCartney. Now on a more serious note, David Shepherd Boy, Old Testament, being hunted down, fearing for his life every day because King Saul was wanting to kill him, had Jonathan. Disciple Peter had James. Also, he had John. He had two Elizabeths. And Paul the Apostle had Silas. And at other times, he had Barnabas. God always provides someone to walk with us through troubled times. Isn't that a good thought? Is there a better example? Is there a better example of that in King's Church than celebrate recovery? We all have our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups, but, but at CR you can find someone who truly knows what you're going through and what you're dealing with, and they'll walk with you through it. Now we go back to Elizabeth. Mary arrives at her place and and the scripture tells us nothing more than a, she just greets her. Hi, Elizabeth. And at that moment, in, in my own language, uh, Elizabeth, the baby inside of Elizabeth, is also pregnant, a huge kick. And her first words, not hearing any explanation from Mary, says, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me. And Mary responds with a song of praise. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. God has an Elizabeth for you, too. Here's the third thing I think that Mary has to be thinking about. She's also thinking about what just happened minutes before this, the shepherd's visit, and how God actually came to be one of us. One of us. Think about that. And he came... When God came to be one of us, do I need to remind you, he didn't just come down, he came all the way down. And by that I mean he came first to shepherds. And in the culture of that day, the shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were even despised by the religious people of that day. With all their duties, they were unable to keep all the details of the law, all the meticulous hand washings and all the rules and regulations, just couldn't do it. Their flocks made for two constant demands on them. And so God's announcement came first to simple men of the fields. Isn't that awesome? I love how Pastor Mac, uh, Mark Batterson puts it. He writes, Had the angel gone to theologians, they would have first consulted their commentaries. Had he gone to the elite, they would have looked around to see if anyone was watching. Had he gone to the successful, they would have first looked at their calendars. So he went to shepherds, men who didn't have a reputation to protect, men who didn't have an axe to grind or a ladder to climb, men who didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing to sheep and messiahs aren't found wrapped in rags and sleeping in an animal feeding trough. God truly was one of us. Think about that. Years ago, Joan Osborne released an album. The year was 1995. And on it was 
a song titled, One of Us. When I first heard that 28 years ago, I, I kind of dismissed it. I thought it was irreverent at best. But on listening to it again lately and listening to her lyrics, I think she was struggling with this same profound truth that Mary is thinking about and you and I are thinking about right at this moment. God, the creator of the universe, one of us, really? Hear the words to the song. What if God was one of us, just a, just a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Just trying to make his way home, back up to heaven all alone. Nobody calling on the phone except for the Pope, maybe in Rome. God is great. God is good. What if God was one of us? Well, Joan, he did become one of us. There was a European king who worried his court and his advisors because he would often disappear to go out into the city and, and walk incognito, in disguise among his people. So he was asked not to do that any longer for security's sake. And here is his response. He said, I cannot rule my people unless I know how they live. It is the great Bible scholar William Barclay comments, it is the great thought of the Christian faith that we have a God who knows the life we live because he lived He lived it too, and claim no special advantage over common men and women. He truly was one of us. Think about that. What an awesome thought. The creator of the universe, a tiny little baby in Mary's arms. Can you imagine? That That little hand that reached up out of the manger and grabbed a hold of Joseph's middle finger was the same hand that moved over the formless abyss in Genesis 1 and separated day from night and worlds leapt into being. Same hand. Think about that. Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. But you know what else Mary was holding in her heart and thinking about often? Here's the fourth and last. She was thinking about the cross. Now maybe you're thinking, Pastor John, come on, 30, the cross is 33 years up the road. How could, how could she possibly be thinking about the cross? Well, friends, Mary realized that the cross was Jesus' destiny that the cross was Jesus' plan from the beginning. Yes, she was familiar with the scriptures that we hear so often at Christmas time. She was no doubt familiar with the words that Moses wrote, recorded in the book of Genesis 1,300 years before. These words, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. Mary, as she's holding that precious child, realized she's holding the one to whom it belongs. The one to whom one day will be reigning king, and king, king of kings and lord of lords. Mary was also familiar, I'm sure, with Isaiah's words from 700 years before. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But all the devout 
in Israel at this time. They were, they were familiar with these prophecies. They were expecting a coming king, a military hero who would save his people from the Romans. But Mary understood something that many people in that day did not, that the Messiah must first come to suffer and to die. Mary also read Isaiah 53. It's the prophet Isaiah who so clearly connects the cradle with the cross. As you reflect on the, on the picture of Mary holding that precious infant, can you imagine her cradling the Christ child and reflecting on the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our sins, our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow, to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of, our, of us all. You know, I believe that when Mary looked at the cradle, she saw the shadow of the cross. And she knew that the cross was Jesus' plan from the beginning. She knew why he came. And she couldn't separate the two. Franciscan University in Ohio recently posted a series of ads on Facebook to promote some of their online theology programs. But Facebook rejected one of them because it included an image of the crucifixion. Facebook reasoned that they responded to the university, uh, said that they found the cross shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. Franciscan University respond, response no doubt surprised Facebook because they agreed with what Facebook said. Their response went like this. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking, and it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life and nailed naked to a cross and left to die. The cross is not a pleasant sight, but it's a place that we all must go. It was said of the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon that he never preached a sermon from any text or on any topic when he didn't at the end of it end up at the cross. We've been to the cradle this morning, and it's a wonderful truth that God chooses to do his greatest work through Mary and continues to work through us. And we celebrate the fact that God provided Mary with Elizabeth to walk with her through difficult times, and he provides someone to walk with you through your difficult times. And it's awesome that God was actually and truly one of us. All that we see at the cradle. But you have to come to the cross to come to the very heart of the gospel. And all these other great and thrilling truths pale in significance.
to the message of the cross. I woke at 4.30 this morning, lay there thinking about this sermon and thinking about the cross. And as I lay there, a fresh realization came over me that the, that the cross was Jesus' plan for the beginning way back before the dawn of time, way back before Genesis 1, he looked down through the corridors of time and he saw, and what was so awesome about this moment at 4.30 this morning was that he saw me and he came to save me. And I echo the words of that great hymn, most of us know the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Think about this. You can't truly come to the cradle and worship the Christ child unless without also coming to the cross and confessing him as Lord and Savior of your life. And so as we close this sermon, as we close this service this morning, I'm going to invite you to come to the cross via coming to the Lord's Supper and taking of the bread and taking of the cup and thinking Stuart Hines' thought, when I think of God, his son not sparing, I scarce can take it in. Here's the invitation from the Apostle Paul. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Late in that scripture, the word often appeared suggesting that we need to do that. Come to the Lord's table. Come to the cross often. So come this morning. Take the bread and the cup and return to your seat. And maybe you want to kneel here at the front. But take at your own leisure over the next few minutes. Come, remember, be thankful, honor him, worship him.